The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. I suppose you all are ready to get started here. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Mark once again. We're going to be picking up here in just a few moments, basically, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 4. I had honestly intended on last week getting a little bit farther in. I had hoped last week actually to get through verse 8, but I also had some introductory remarks I wanted to close out with, so we spent a little bit of our time doing that on last week so we got down really to the bottom of verse three so we'll be tying some things back together there in just a moment just kind of run back through these slides not to say anything about them really but we have uh, already gotten the idea of kind of the perspective through which we're going to be going at this book uh, looking at it for what it is it speaks of jesus being the perfect servant of god and it divides itself in two halves in my mind of course there are many subsets to that but in two halves chapter 1 and verse 1 through chapter 10 and verse 52 uh, speak primarily of what you might call the servant and his, his works and, and different things that he does. And then on the second half of that, chapter 11 and 1 through the end of the book, you talk more about him as a Savior. So he's a servant in the first half, he's a Savior in the second. And then I shared with you on last week, I handed out some handouts. There may be some more of those available. I don't have any in my hand right now. Uh, but uh, kind of a more extensive outline to go down through uh, chapter 10 and verse 52. And so that's kind of what's up on the screen behind me, and we examined that uh, a little bit on last week. Now, something I'm adding this week, and I, I'm going to put this up many, many times over the next uh, couple, three months, something like that, a little bit of a chart, because one of the things that can be a huge advantage to us as Bible students, when, particularly when you're studying the book of Mark, because it is so fast-paced, it's so concise, precise, is to see the parallel passages. All of these gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, obviously are telling the same story from different eyes, different perspectives. And as they go through, there is an awful lot that each of those gospels, believe it or not, almost tend to leave out. Mark's writes very brief, again, very fast-paced, and others expand on that. But I didn't pull up all of those comparisons here as of yet. But what I was realizing as I was going through and trying to pick some of these out, and I did this by hand, so it could definitely be a failure, uh, but is that there are details that are, that are revealed in Mark that are not found anywhere else, and then vice versa for all of those books. But what Mark does tell us is uh, what I have listed in this chart. I put Mark in the beginning because that's who we're focusing on, his account, his perspective. What Mark does tell us, and when he talks about something, I've got some of the parallels out beside that, of Matthew, Luke, and also of John. And it's always good because when Mark speaks in those brief terms, sometimes you can just turn to one of those other gospel accounts and get a lot more detail and a lot more emphasis put on certain things. Now, again, that's, that's the opposite is true. Sometimes that Mark may give more detail on something than the other, but in more times than not, he's much more brief in his account. So there are many times where the parallels are drawn. There are a few times which are illustrated by these dotted lines when the other accounts just completely leave things out. They don't make mention of that. And again, that's all about inspiration and its perspective that Mark was led and chosen to be revealed to him. So I worked pretty hard this afternoon on that chart and then Tyler made it look good for me. I sent it over to Tyler because mine looked horrible 
and I gave him all the reference and things to key in. He took care of that. So we'll be coming back to that. The thing that you might want to know about that now is that Mark chapter 1 verses 2 through 6 are paralleled in Matthew chapter 3 verse 1 through 6. Also Luke 3 and verse 1 through 6. Very exactly the same there, the reference. And then in John chapter 1 verse 19 to 23. So it's interesting even in that small comparison that what Mark jumps into right out of the gate John, I'm sorry, uh, Luke and Matthew don't choose to get around to until they're over three chapters in. So just something that's kind of interesting to, to me as a, a Bible nerd or whatever maybe will interest you and probably be helpful to you over time. We've divided the context we're looking at now into these three things. I won't repeat those necessarily and go into any detail, but we did start looking at some of the highlights there. Beginning in verse 1, we'll reread this text going down through verse 3, which is kind of where we ended out on last week. It says this, In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way for the Lord, uh, of the Lord, and make his paths straight. Of course, we examine in detail the word beginning. We obviously looked at the word gospel, which means the good news, the glad tidings of Christ. In this case, it was a secular word that was made Christian, basically. Uh, we talked a little bit about the messenger here, and, and we made some reference to that. The main three references you'll know about John the baptizer is who this is going to be revealed as and the preacher of the next section but John the baptizer was more or less prophesied to fill these shoes. Uh, whether you find that as, as these references go in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3, Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1, or Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5, each of those tell us that at one point there would be a forerunner uh, called Elijah in those references in Malachi, as a matter of fact, which those Jews in that day and time, to give them credit, they some of them, and being as strict as they were with, with anything that God had revealed to them, uh, took that to literally mean Elijah, the prophet, was going to be resurrected, was going to return to this earth. Well, that's not what was set to happen. Elijah, Elijah was taken from this life and not to return. However, uh, his shoes would be filled from one perspective by John the baptizer. He would be the one bringing this gospel in. And, of course, that's the character here in this section that we're in. Only other thing that I recall that we really tried to emphasize uh, those two words that you find, verse 2, the word prepare, verse 3, the word prepare, are actually two different words in the Greek language, at least the way that they were originally stated, and they state a little bit different perspective. The first one, more or less a physical preparation. The second one, more of a spiritual preparation, and primarily allowed us to understand that Jesus' way that John prepared was one that was, yes, spiritual, but he was preparing it as if he were preparing royalty to come into town. And that's kind of literally the sense of the way the words would have been used in that day, preparations. If royalty were to come to town, preparations would be made, uh, much like as you might have seen on the old programs, Andy Griffith or something like that. Of course, small towns like us would do much the same if someone... Uh, important, at least to, to man's eyes, were to come into town. You might find people getting out, cleaning up their front yards and shining up the businesses and the windows and kind of setting things up. Well, in one sense, Jesus definitely had that type of preparation. Not that they were celebrating him physically that way, but John was set to prepare those minds 
more or less. So we get in here in verses 4 through 6, uh, which carry us a little bit farther. The preparation 1 to 3, the preacher himself described in verse 4 through 6 and what he was set to do. And uh, when I see this, I see a lot of different things emphasized. I kind of did this little drawing for my own benefit, and I just put it up here so you can see uh, the way I'm kind of looking at this. The idea of verses 4 through 6, which we'll read now, John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out unto him in the land of Judea and all they of Jerusalem, and all were baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And then verse 6, the latter of this, And John was clothed with camel's hair, with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. So verse 6, it says, John did baptize in the wilderness. Is there any significance? And, and you may already be thinking of some things. Is there any significance? If you look back over, for example, the Old Testament, did there seem to ever be any significance or significant events that took place in the wilderness? Anybody think of something that had to do with that? 40 years, 40 years in the wilderness is probably the standout one. Uh, because it did not involve just an individual, but involved a whole nation. And so God allows the Israelite nation, as we refer to them, to go into that wilderness wandering, spend their 40 years. Now, obviously, that came because of their doubt, their unbelief. It was more or less a weeding out period of time. I, I don't know if you call it a punishment or not necessarily, but it was a weeding out period of time where God allowed a certain group of people by age to die out and to be removed because they were, they were not faithful in what they did, not faithful in at least the trusting of God. Uh, but before they go into the promised land, which is pictured in so many different glorious ways, they had to first pass through the wilderness. Now, kind of something that comes before that, and there were other accounts as well, but there's a person that had a lot to do with the leadership of Israel and, and the wilderness wandering, what was the main character's name in that? Moses. How did God prepare Moses for his leadership role? Sent him to the wilderness. Moses was there in Egypt. Of course, he was living in the house of Pharaoh. He was, uh, you might as well say, probably living it high, wide, and handsome, enjoying his life, not necessarily realizing, I don't believe in the beginning. Well, we know in the beginning he didn't completely realize his heritage, he didn't realize from whence he came or anything like that. But he eventually discovers that and eventually he takes up for one of his own people, uh, slays a man, and then has to run for it. He ends up in the wilderness and in the wilderness he met with whom? He meets with God. Uh, God speaks to him through the, through the way of that burning bush and he reveals to him right then and there what his plan for Moses was. Now Moses didn't necessarily agree with all that. Matter of fact, you look at those accounts in the Exodus and you find Moses arguing with God basically about that, trying to convince God it seems that he wasn't prepared for such, but God left Moses how long in the wilderness? There, there are three periods of Moses' life, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and 40 years in the wandering. He spends 40 years in that. Now if that be, and I think it was in picture, if that be a part of the preparation that Moses or later the children of Israel had to go through to receive the blessing of God, that's significant within itself. Others included in this list, and there are several other parallels, 
other, another person included this list was Elijah. Elijah was sent in the wilderness. Elijah was there in the wilderness, and that's where he was prepared ultimately to do the work of God. Jonah, now he pretty much carried himself there, but Jonah goes into the wilderness. And then you look at that, and you go all the way down through the Old Testament. Several of the parallels come to mind. You get all the way through the Old Testament, and you come to a page, and it's just a physical page to, to illustrate it, but you come to a page between your testaments and what's written on that. Nothing. It's that blank page. What occurred during that time? About 400 years in the wilderness for mankind. Now that's not necessarily literally, that wasn't in the deserted place. They all weren't living in deserts or anything like that. But 400 years of silence, basically, as far as the revelation of God goes by in order that we get to the first verse of Mark chapter 1 or the first verse of some of these other gospel accounts and it's able to say the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Preparing, by, prepared as, as we see it in Galatians 4 and verse 4, described as the fullness of time, when the fullness of time was come. So there's a lot that John is able to do, and there's a lot that parallels John to some other characters, particularly to Elijah in the way that he was in the wilderness. So I don't know if that speaks to much other than the fact that you may discover or you may at least understand sometimes in your life or mine when if you'll look back, you'll say, well, I sure had to go through the wilderness to get to where I am. And sometimes our lives feel as if we're kind of trapped there, but that's at least where John was. So he did baptize in the wilderness, and then he preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now let's think about the idea of repentance. How important in the scheme of redemption, or in what we might call the plan of salvation, how important is repentance? It's very important. And I've heard so many sermons and classes taught and other things, and I appreciate all of them because I think they're pretty accurate in that, that the most difficult part of the plan of salvation, just to use those terms, is that of repentance. A lot of times you can get people, uh, you can get a lot of people to agree, well, I've got I've to know about the gospel, and I've got to believe in God, and they go through all those things. And sometimes, and there's a lot of argument coming up over baptism, but sometimes people will even give into that really quickly. But it's sometimes more difficult to repent. Because what is biblical repentance about? It's about changing. A lot of times when it comes to repenting of something, that becomes one of the more difficult concepts, not for someone just initially to obey the gospel, but even for us, the Christians, to live that gospel. So let's look at a few things uh, concerning the idea of repentance. Now, biblical repentance, I've given you several scriptures. We won't go to many or any of these, really. But biblical repentance, and it doesn't matter whether or not you've got this first, first list up here, John the baptizer preaching and teaching about it, and that record found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, where you've got Jesus himself speaking on, of course, in many of the gospel accounts. Peter talks about that, and he makes a big emphasis statement on it in Acts 2 and verse 38. When they ask him, what shall we do? What was his answer? Acts 2.38. How's that scripture sound? Repent. <laughs> the first word. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So repentance is the front line there. 
That's the way he heads that thing up. And then whether you're looking at Peter or Paul discussing in many cases throughout the accounts where it's revealed of him and several references also go there. Most of that comes out of the book of Acts most directly. But whether or not you're talking about any of these characters or, or any other character you could imagine, repentance always carries with it that same theme. It carries with it that same idea. Now what the Apostle Paul does, and this is probably one of the more familiar scriptures we, we have on that, and I don't assume many of you can back can see that, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, in verse 10, the Apostle Paul, through inspiration, gives us some illustration and demonstration of what repentance is. And he says this, here's how the scripture reads, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. He says, godly sorrow worketh repentance. What's that, what's that idea? That's someone who can look to God and say, I'm sorry, God, I want to change. A lot of times you'll find someone, particularly in a courtroom situation, they've committed whatever crime, uh, they know they've committed it. Maybe their lawyers conceded that, look, you're going to have to go in. You're going to have to plead guilty to this. And then their best advice to them is if they pled guilty and or are convicted of it is to do what? Sometimes they'll want to make some kind of statement. You need to show some remorse. And there are times, I'm sure, that there must be times when there are people who are actually absolutely remorseful who for whatever crime they've committed, that's the last day and the last time they ever want to consider that crime. They would never go back to that. Their, their lives are free of that, and for whatever penalty they have to pay, they'll go ahead, they'll pay that time, they'll do that time, whatever. They'll come out in society, and they'll go back to a life that's as normal as you and I. They may live a better life than they've ever lived because they have truly repented. But sometimes what might be called remorse or repentance is really tied more to what? I'm sorry I got caught. It's not always about actually wanting to change. And in the context of this 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10, Paul illustrates that. I don't put all those verses on this, just the one. But Paul is illustrating that by basically saying, look, if you just want to be sorry that you've gotten caught, or you just want to be sorry just for the fact of saying you're sorry, that's not going to be enough. It's got to be a godly sorrow. A godly sorrow, and I think it's a key, I appreciate in this case the King James and the ETHs, you know, that's just a matter of something that has a beginning and keeps on happening, continues on. He connects it directly with godly sorrow that is worketh, meaning it keeps working toward repentance. Now that doesn't have to be one day, and one sin, or one day in that case of the illustration, one crime, that means someone who says, you know what, it doesn't matter what I have done in life, what I may do in life, and in any time in my life, my intention is to continually and constantly be willing to repent. And of course that repentance is tied to our salvation directly in so many other cases. Uh, but, but that's the idea there, repentance. So it's not just being sorrow, Sorrowful, it is being sorrowful to the point of being willing to change. And every one of those biblical accounts from before are tied to that. Now he says this is the baptism. He's in the wilderness. He's committing people to baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now this is where things get confusing for us. 
Because the baptism that John is performing at this time was it set to save anyone? Not from the perspective through which we would be baptized today. If a person decides to be baptized today, the emphasis on that, and it's Acts 2.38, is the first initial time that it's revealed as this and backed up in every other account throughout the book of Acts. The reason for that baptism listed right there is for the remission of sin, for the doing away, for the sending away of those sins. And when did that begin? The day of Pentecost, Christ's death on the cross is what it's compen- or, or what, what I, what's my word? Dependent on. But it began on the day of Pentecost right there, and it began as we have it recorded in Acts 2. And from that point on, if anyone were to be baptized according to God's will and after His way, the intention there was for them to be baptized for in order to have their sins to be remitted, washed away, forgiven. But you see, that doesn't jive well with the fact that John is baptizing prior to any of that. In time frame, this is hindsight, biblical slash historical, in rough time frame, how long was it between the time we see John on the scene doing what he does and when Jesus ultimately dies on the cross? Roughly three years. Now, the best time frame we have in that is what John reveals, not Mark. John is the most chronological of the gospel accounts. John, as a matter of fact, John several different times throughout his account gives us specific times and dates. Mainly, he he talks about the Passover. He brings up feast of the Jews, mainly the Passover. And every time he mentions the Passover, it's been a year. And so by the time John mentions that several times over, the Passover, the Passover, the Passover, and Jesus being present at those, that's where we can do our math, that Jesus' physical, literal ministry consisted of three years. Because there were three Passovers between that, him dying on the last, or being put to death on the last. So we have the chronological basis of that. But that predated the establishment of the church. And so we're going to come back to that a little bit later, but the differences, and there are slight differences, I'll give you the summary of it. Basically, the, the baptism that John is committing to was not for the purpose of salvation, but in a sense, you could also illustrate it more as a purpose of preparation. Because he's baptizing people here in order that they would be willing to repent in order they would be paired, prepared to have those sins to be remitted. You don't realize that, or at least you can't necessarily in verse 4, but that's more to be discovered in the latter part of this when we mention it a couple different times in the text. So that's the idea of that. But what is another requirement here? Verse 5. Verse 5 adds to that, And there went out unto him in the land of Judea, and they of all of Jerusalem and all were baptized in the river Jordan. What's the next part of that? Confessing their sins. Now, this is where you kind of put this historically in its time. This takes place, this is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, Mark chapter 1. This is when John the baptizer comes onto the scene, Mark chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. And John comes out and he's baptizing people. 
and it's being witnessed by the Gentiles, some of them, and also witnessed by the Jews. The detail here reveals to us that he was beyond Jordan doing this and that people were coming from as far away as Jerusalem or Judea. That's about 20 miles, roughly. So there's some effort here. There's some sort of attractiveness, I guess you'd call it that, some sort of appeal to whatever John the Baptizer is doing in the wilderness that draws people out, whether or not they're out there for, for good intentions or curiosity. They're coming out. And they're being baptized. And not necessarily in this section, but you start to realize in the latter sections, even of chapter 1, that many of the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, were very, very, very agitated and aggravated by this. Because in their history, a baptism was more of a ceremonial event. It was exactly what it would have been. It was a washing of senses, and it was more or less. Now, we've got a whole world... Uh, today, a religious world, to use that loosely, who their definition of what baptism is, and I promise we're going to get to this a little bit later, but their definition of what baptism is and its purpose is an outward showing of what? Here's that statement we hear all the time. It's an outward showing of an inward faith. It's only representing the fact that your sins have been washed away and you're only telling the world or showing the world that you trust that. Now that's nutshell uh, too quick, there'll be more that we'll have to talk about when we get farther into this, throughout the book, really. The deal, however, comes into this in that these Jews of that day, they knew of those ceremonial cleansings. And in this case, these baptisms, what were they doing to, to remove sins, literally? How much were they doing? I'll illustrate like this. Nothing. But they were preparing the minds of men to be ready for the Savior. Please don't quote me from your notes, and, and I hate that we're down to the time we are because I'm going to look like a fool. And, and you, know. you want to see an outward showing of inward faith? This was it. Because this baptism right here that John was committed those people to was not actually removing their sin. But by these men, particularly the Jews, coming out to the Jordan there and allowing themselves to be immersed by John was in one sense proving or showing that they were willing to begin the change, the repentance in their life that was required. You say, well, Jim, how can you know that? Well... Again, there's more to be built on this, but one of the things that comes in is that chart I showed a, a while back about the or a while back about the idea of the parallel accounts, because this goes very quickly through that. But look with me, if you would, for just a moment to Luke's account, Luke chapter three. This is Matthew, Mark. So go over toward your right, Luke chapter three. Look along about, um, let's see. Let's look at verse 4. We're going to get to verse, no, don't do that. Look at verse 3. Luke 3, 3. This is the same account, but from Luke's perspective. And he 
came into the country about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Nearby a direct quote there, that last phrase, is to what Mark has. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, and make his path straight. And every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight. So that's the idea of preparing the way, make his path straight, same parallel as that, and it shall be made smooth. For all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, not to go into too much detail, this is a picture in verse 6 of, of Luke 3. That's the salvation of God is going to be Jesus. The name Jesus meant what? Jehovah saves. Is the idea there. Verse 7. And then he, that's John, he then said he to the multitude that came forth to be baptized of him, O ye generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance, and begin not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham our father. For I say unto you that God is able from these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid under the root and the trees uh, of every tree there, there, therefore. And it bringeth forth not much fruit and, and is hewn down and cast in the fire. And the people ask him saying, What shall we do then? And he answered and said to them in verse 11, He that had two coats, let him, let him impart, and he that hath none, and he that hath meat, let him do likewise. And then came unto him the publicans to be baptized even. So these are the tax collectors. And said unto him, Master, what shall we do? And he said unto them, Exact ye no more than was appointed you. And the soldiers likewise demanded him, saying unto him, What shall we do? Verse 14, he said unto them, Do, do violence to no man, neither accuse of any falsely, or in the contrast with your wages. And the people that were in the expedition. And it just goes on and on and on. And John continues to come back. Verse 16 of uh, Luke 3. And John answers saying unto them. I indeed baptize you with water. But there is one mightier than I that cometh. Whose latchet of whom shoes I am not worthy to unloose. And shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And with fire. And why read all that? That's, that's 16 verses. That's a ton of verses for a dyslexic. And you knew I was dyslexic if you tried to read along because you couldn't keep up. What was he doing? Unlike most preachers today, he was denying people. There were people who were coming out, whether it was the publicans, whether it was the leaders of the Jews, whether it was some of the general public, whatever. There were people who were flooding out this is a longer account of the same thing that's being said so briefly back in Mark's account. There were people who were coming out saying, look, I want to be like everybody else. I want to be baptized. And instead of him just grabbing them and putting them in the water and pulling them back up and saying, go your way, that's it. He was telling them, no, you have to change. You have to repent first. And John said, you better bring me some fruits of repentance. What John says is, I'm not baptizing you right now, right in this moment. I want to know that you're changing. I want to see that there's change in your life that's coming ahead. And so John the baptizer 
is the forerunner of Jesus. And the command, the instruction he has been given is to prepare ye the way for the Lord. And one way in which, there are actually three to four of these, but one way in which he did that is by telling people, it's time today to start getting ready for him in your own life. When I had my heart transplanted, it be 10 years ago in May, and, and believe you, anybody that's around me for 15 minutes knows that I'm not strict on this. But I was told that day, okay, from this day on, you got to watch your sugar, you got to watch your salt, you got to watch this, you got to change your diet, you got to start exercising. They gave me a whole list. It took days to explain all the instruction I had uh, to do. And you know how hard that was? It was actually really hard. The better idea would have been when I was headed toward transplant for the last three or five years, headed toward that to start eating right and exercising better and all. Because guess what I asked for when I came out of transplant surgery? The first meal I ate was a pizza. The very first meal. The second one I ate was hot wings at 2.30 in the morning with the doctors. That ain't a good idea. If someone wants to be baptized, not saying that this had to have happened prior to this or has to happen instantly, but in their heart, they better be ready to start that change and to begin that process. So what John is going to do, and we haven't gotten to verse 8 yet, but what John is going to do, and he is doing here, he comes out to these people. Uh, Luke's account gives us a much wider, broader picture of it, but he comes to these people and he says, look, you need to start getting ready now. Because Jesus is on his way. He's going to come and he's going to bring to you a baptism of the Holy Ghost, the pouring out of the Spirit, which in one sense, and I've got whole discussions on this, primarily had to do with their salvation itself. But the time for you Jews, I would say it would point, the time for you publicans, the time for you people to change is now. To get your heart ready now. And one of the ways they committed to doing that for a Jew especially was to be baptized. Because in their day, baptism was either a spiritual washing. I mean, not, I mean what I say, not spiritual. Ceremonial washing. Or it was done to a proselyte. You say, what's a proselyte? A proselyte was a Gentile that determined that he or she wanted to follow the law of the Jews. And before they would be allowed to be a part of that group, they required of them to be baptized in a ceremonial sense to commit to that. Did that proselyte baptism do anything for those people? You can do this right here. No, didn't do a thing. But it was a hard pill to swallow for a Gentile to go about and do what a Jew was doing. It was a harder pill to swallow for a Jew to see a Gentile willing to do that and now you've got Jew and Gentile pouring out of Judea, coming out to John the baptizer, who is a wild man, basically. Pictures Elijah in doing that, but he's a wild man. He dresses in, he's covered in camel's hair and, and skins. And, uh, you know, he'd taken, uh, he was a Nazarene, so he probably had the Nazarite look to him. A, you know, grungy, grungy fellow. He's out in there, and he's telling people to be baptized. And I'm sure many of them were stepping out and saying, I don't have to be baptized. I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm not a proselyte. I don't have to be baptized. He says, you need to be baptized 
You have to be baptized because you've got to show that you're willing to repent. You've got to commit to this. You've got to be ready. Because my baptism is, is, is just it's for water. But the one who comes after me, Jesus, will baptize you with the Spirit, which means he'll be able to wash away your sins. He'll be able to remove those sins. He'll take those things away. How do we know that John felt that way? Parallel accounts. John 1 and verse 14, John's account. John 1 and verse 14, John is quoted as saying this. It says the same thing in verse 29 of John 1. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. John says, in this context, I'm not even worthy to unloose his sandals. So when he's questioning in John's account at length, are you the Messiah? He says, no, no, I'm not the Messiah. I'm only a picture. I'm only bringing the message of the Messiah. I'm only telling you that he's on his way. He's, he's there. In that sense, he is at hand. So this man right here, John, comes out, and we'll talk more in detail when we get farther into this. He comes out to baptize and to preach the baptism of repentance for remission of sins, and he requires them that are baptized to confess their sins. And that's big. Because a Jew standing there, if he were to walk out to this, this desert area, he pops his suspenders and said, I don't have sin. I'm beyond sin. And that's why in Luke's account, Luke goes through that dissertation of John, not only calling only repentance, but he says, look, God could raise up stones. I mean, he could, he could save a rock. But your father, as, as Jesus had to tell them later, your father is not of Abraham, your father is of the devil. So see, it was a mindset, it was a heart that they had of the lack thereof, a willingness to repent that comes into play in that. I heard a bell ring. Any questions or comments or statements? Right, we got a long way to go, so don't quote me from your notes. That's what we were always told in school, which merely meant that just, just give us time. We got a lot to go through, so thank you.